All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Okay, before we get going, I have a quick announcement about the contest. I'm surprised by how many of you listen in bed or in the bath. And if you're one of the people who's brave enough to bring an MP3 player into the bath, or you feel the need to have me babble at you before you go to bed, fear not. You don't need to send me a photo of you in the bath or in bed to be part of the contest. I'm not a creeper. So instead, just share with us how you wish you could be listening to the BHP, or your general experience with the BHP, or something like that. Be creative. Now this episode is going to have a lot of moving pieces, and a lot of athels. So many athels. And I'm going to do my best to keep reminding you of who I'm talking about, and what they rule over, and why they're important. But this might be an episode that you're going to want to re-listen to. A lot of important things are going to happen, and all of the action is going to take place in just over a decade, and it's a very, very messy decade. Okay, now that I've scared you off, let's bring you up to speed. So Augustine was now the Archbishop of England. He had orders to expand into York and London, despite their current pagan leadership. He had King Ethelbert of Kent on his side, but other than that, he was sort of on his own on the island, at least unless he counted his missionaries. And that was partially because he failed to make friends with the Christians in the Celtic West. And here's a tip. When trying to make friends, don't threaten to have them killed. But really, for Augustine, despite his conflict with the Christians to the West, things were going pretty well. I mean, by this point, he had founded a couple monasteries, and he had even rebuilt the old Roman church in Canterbury, along with the help of Ethelbert. We also see that he was carrying out Pope Gregory's orders fairly well by convincing the Anglo-Saxons to slightly shift their pagan feasts so that those feasts could actually count as celebrations of Christian martyrs. And rather than knocking temples down, he would just go around and consecrate them. And that move, incidentally, was politically savvy for gaining converts and probably also kept Augustine and his fellow missionaries from meeting a bloody end at the hands of an angry mob. Though again, during this period, we also continue to see how strict Augustine was in dealing with already existing Christians that he found. For example, the cult of Sixtus, which was the cult we talked about in earlier episodes, it was the one that reminded me of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, well that one had to be shut down. So there definitely seems to be an element of picking your battles here, rather than just a general sense of theological tolerance. But ultimately, things were coming up Augustine. And as a bonus, King Sled died. I know that's a pretty dark thing to say, but for Augustine, that was probably a relief because it meant that his son, Sabert, took the throne of the East Saxons. And Sabert was not just an underking to Augustine's Christian ally, Ethelbert, he was also the Kentish king's brother-in-law through marriage to Ricola. When you think about it, the pressure placed upon King Sabert to convert must have been incredible. He had family pressure, political pressure, and it wasn't just normal political pressure, he shared a border with the most powerful military power in the south. And actually, he shared another border with the second most powerful military power in the south. And to make matters worse, Ethelbert had shown since he was a young king that he really didn't shy away from military conflict, so that must have been giving him the heebie-jeebies. And it probably didn't help that Augustine wanted the church to be located in London. And I can imagine that Ethelbert might have thought that if Sabert wouldn't play ball and allow him to build in London, that maybe he would just reach out and take the capital from his pagan neighbor's hands. And he could probably do it. So yeah, things are a bit rough. And we don't know a lot about Sabert, but from what little records we have of him, 
I really do feel sorry for him because he didn't have much of a choice. And to turn the screws just a little bit more on King Sabert, Augustine did what he was ordered to do by the Pope. He started ordaining bishops, and he sent one of them, a guy by the name of Melitus, to Sabert's capital, London. And I suppose it shouldn't surprise you to learn that Sabert soon converted and was baptized by Bishop Melitus in 604. And actually, we see this sort of thing happening quite a bit during this era, where weaker nobles and monarchs switch religious identification to match what their superiors are professing. So suddenly, we have a Christian king of the East Saxons. Whether he actually believed isn't mentioned. Like I said, our record is pretty spotty. But ultimately, the internal views of Sabert aren't as important as what he did. Unfortunately, we aren't really given many details on how his kingdom was dealt with in the context of this conversion. For example, whether there was a subsequent mass conversion of all his subjects. But from the context, it sounds like there probably wasn't a mandatory mass conversion. Or if there was one, it didn't take. Because we have records of other East Saxons, including Sabert's own sons, who were still practicing pagans. And the continuing presence of pagans in the East Saxon lands might have become a bit of a problem for Sabert. That's because we're told he granted the church land in London. And so from the pagan point of view, not only had these foreign holy men converted their king, they even had a foothold in their own capital. And according to Bede, construction subsequently began on St. Paul's under the direction and presumably funding of King Ethelbert of Kent. Yeah, you heard that right. That wasn't me misspeaking. It wasn't King Sabert who was building that church. It was King Ethelbert of Kent in London, which was the capital of the East Saxons, not Kent. And that's how powerful this king was, and also how much cash he had to spare. Based upon the archaeological evidence, the Kingdom of Kent was not only more Frankish than any other kingdom in Eastern Britain, it was also substantially more wealthy and displayed a greater range of imported goods. And part of this might have been due to their links with the Franks. But at least according to some scholars, it might have also been due to the fact that they maintained some level of infrastructure from the old Romano-British days, which would have given them a leg up. And it wasn't just imported goods and trade that they obtained through their Frankish connections that helped them gather so much wealth. There's also a good chance that those connections redefined their economy and led to the production of coinage. And I know it's been a long time since we've spoken about the Anglo-Saxon economic system. But moving from the local food-based system towards a moneyed economy would have given Kent a huge advantage. Though, while coins were present, they do seem to have taken a little while to catch on, and would continue to be rare for at least another 25 years. Anyway, the point is that these people were well-to-do. And that wealth probably assisted Ethelbert in his expansion. And so all of this is good for King Ethelbert and Archbishop Augustine. But what about King Sabert? Well, that's probably another matter. He had converted to a foreign religion that even his own family wasn't impressed with. He had given land to this holy man so that he could build a temple in their capital. And as salt in the wound, the construction wasn't even being directed by King Sabert, but rather King Ethelbert of Kent was doing it. In an era where kings needed the support of the thanes to continue their rule, and a major way that you would gain their support was through strength, the fact that he buckled like a belt was probably not doing Sabert any favors. 
And while we're talking about political structures and fallout from conversion, something that I haven't mentioned yet is that it doesn't look like Kent had only one king. Like many other kingdoms of the time, it looks like there were multiple kings in the kingdom, with one reigning supreme. It's been theorized that this sort of arrangement was often the result of conquest and the merger of existing kingdoms. And I suppose that makes sense. If you batter an opposing kingdom, it's probably better to absorb the kingdom and its administration rather than to demolish it and have to rebuild from the ground up. So in this case, we have records that indicate, at least from time to time, that Kent had a king of the west and also a king of the east. And it's thought that this system began sometime before the conversion, when East Kent took over West Kent. Actually, Barbara York argues that even during the reign of Ethelbert, this system of multiple kings of Kent might have been happening, with Ethelbert reigning in the east and Ethelbert's own son, Eidwald, ruling in the west. Support for this theory is found in the fact that Eidwald made a grant to the recently ordained Bishop of Rochester. Now that might seem innocuous, but from the record, it seems like there was some level of conflict regarding it, because the bishop didn't know that Ethelbert needed to confirm the grant. So it sounds like the bishop might have thought that Eidbald was reigning in his own right. But if that's the case, even at this point, it's pretty clear that Ethelbert still would have been the dominant king, since Eidbald did indeed need to have the confirmation of Ethelbert. So that's kind of fun, but I saved the most interesting part of this for the last. You see, while King Ethelbert and Queen Bertha were Christian, Eidbald, their son, didn't follow in their footsteps. He was still a practicing pagan. Yet he provided a grant to the bishop. Don't you think that's strange? Why? I wish he kept some kind of diary so we could know why he did that. I get the feeling that maybe he was trying to curry favor with his vastly more powerful father, or maybe he was trying to hedge his bets just in case the Christians were right, or maybe he was trying to gain Frankish favor, or really any number of other reasons. We just don't know. But it certainly is an interesting move for Eidbald to make, isn't it? Anyway, internal Kentish politics aside, we have two new bishops, one in Western Kent and one in London. And Ethelbert was constructing a cathedral at the site where the Pope intended to make the See of England, London, which was outside of his own kingdom. And that alone is something of a surprising move. Now, Ethelbert was incredibly powerful, and maybe it was so powerful that he thought that the relocation was no big deal, since he was functionally in charge of that region anyways. Or maybe he was trying to find a way to stretch his influence into London and claim it as part of Kent. We'll see that many kingdoms will try and claim London before England is finally united. But ultimately, we'll probably never know. But the Kentish influence upon the region cannot be denied here. They're incredibly powerful. And actually, it wasn't just Sabert who was under a bunch of peer pressure from Ethelbert. We also saw that happening up in the Northeast as well. That's because it's at this point in our story that King Raidwald explodes onto the scene. Now, Raidwald might be a name that you're familiar with, because he's often theorized to be the individual buried at Sutton Hoo. And if you've seen those artifacts, you probably have some sense of how important this man was, if that was his burial mound. Well, Raidwald was the king of the East Angles, and his kingdom was uncomfortably close to the powerful kingdom of Kent, and also their nominally Christian allies, the East Saxons. And that might have been a little bit of an issue for Raidwald. 
because he was pagan. And Ethelbert seemed to want everybody to be Christian. And it looks like Ethelbert was going to get his way. Because while the date isn't entirely clear, sometime at around this point in our story, at the urging of King Ethelbert, who might have even stood as his sponsor, Raidwald was baptized. And it looks like he further secured his position by marrying a member of the dynasty of the East Saxons. Though tragically, her name has been lost to history. But all of this stuff, at least from our vantage point, does look a bit political. And Raidwald's choice of marital alliances might have backfired upon the church. Sure, the East Saxons were now ostensibly Christian, at least the king was. But it doesn't look like it entirely took. I say that because, at least according to Plunkett, this rather influential queen persuaded her king to at least partially break away from the staunch Christian position. He started sliding back to paganism. And as we mentioned before, the East Saxons don't seem to have been super excited about conversion. So the behavior of Raidwald's queen could be further evidence of exactly how lukewarm that conversion was. But back to East Anglia. So Plunkett thinks that Raidwald softened on Christianity because of the influence of his queen. Other scholars argue that Raidwald was never really serious about conversion in the first place, and that it was just political. The reality is that we probably just won't know for certain. But we do have records that indicate that Raidwald might have been trying to have his cake and eat it too, because he was keeping a Christian altar in addition to his pagan altar. And provided that you ignore that whole jealous God part of Christianity, that probably was a good way to keep everyone happy. But unfortunately for Raidwald, there was a rule against other gods. And as you might imagine, Bede wrote about this and was scandalized. But honestly, in addition to hedging your bets with powerful deities, it might have also just been good politics. Raidwald probably didn't want to anger his overking, but he also didn't want to anger his gods nor his subjects who still believed in those gods. Besides, completely abandoning his gods could be seen as a tacit acceptance of Kentish domination, and that probably would make him look pretty weak to his thanes. And so while he might have bent a little, Raidwald was still an incredibly powerful king in the south, and he was actually described as a ductus, meaning that he had full military control of his own forces, which was not a given for underkings. So the power of Raidwald was probably even acknowledged by Ethelbert of Kent. So this baptism and multi-use temple might have been something of a compromise, which also would have signaled to everyone who was watching that he still kept to the old ways and was still powerful enough to stand up to the king of Kent, but also kept him from having to go to war with Kent. So yeah, things were a little tense in the south, what with the rapid conversions that were taking place. And things up in the north weren't looking any better. And I'm sure you're surprised. So King Aethelfrith of Bernicia had been causing all manner of troubles for his neighbors. Following his victory at Cat Wraith, he started beating up on whichever of his neighbors caught his attention and then took their stuff, like many of the kings of the time did. He was so effective at this that we're told that he was even stretching his territory into Scotland. And that was really worrying for, well... It was really worrying for everyone who wasn't King Aethelfrith. So Aidan MacGabrain, the king of Dalriada, gathered a large army in Scotland and marched against the Spernician king. What followed is known as the Battle of Degsistan, which took place in 603. And what you need to know about this battle is that King Aidan got spanked 
thoroughly. Despite the fact that his forces reportedly outnumbered the Anglo-Saxon army, the loss was so severe that Bede tells us that it broke the back of the kingdom, and that they hadn't fought against the English again through to the time of his writing, which means that they hadn't fought against the English for at least another 130 years. Sounds like it was pretty intense. However, some scholars argue that this might have been spin on the part of Bede, and it's possible that terms might have been struck between the two kingdoms. Our sources are spotty, but as we go forward in the story, we'll see that the relationship between the two dynasties weren't as icy as you would expect. And maybe the reason for that, and also the reason for the lack of conflict going forward, wasn't due to terror and military domination, but instead because an accord had been met between the ruling dynasties. But regardless of how Degsistan was resolved, things were going well in Bernicia, and I'm guessing that King Aethelfrith was feeling pretty good what with the expansion of his kingdom and the domination of his neighbors. He's sounding a bit like a northern pagan Ethelbert, isn't he? It's kind of surprising, especially for a descendant of Ida. However, Bernicia was not the only Anglian kingdom in the north. There was also Deira. Now, the king of Deira was called Aethelric. Close listeners might be saying, Aethelric? That's Aethelfrit's father, and a son of Ida. Well... Unfortunately, that's probably not the case. It looks like he's an entirely different Aethelric. But we aren't really too sure about this guy. We don't even know how he became king. Was he the son of the prior king, Ayla? Maybe, but he just as likely could have taken the throne by force. And so, until 604, we just don't know much about this guy. And the reason why we learn about him in 604 is because that's when Aethelfrith of Bernicia invaded Deira and killed him. Now, there are quite a few theories regarding this event. The first is that Aethelfrith of Bernicia took Deira by conquest, killed Aethelric, and Edwin, the son of Ayla, fled the kingdom. And in this theory, Edwin was the brother of Aethelric. And that's entirely possible. Another theory is that Aethelric wasn't Edwin's brother, but rather had ousted Ayla and taken the throne for himself. And in that theory, Aethelfrith of Bernicia invaded Deira in collaboration with the ousted dynasty, and maybe even Edwin himself. And the result of this coup was that Aethelfrith was on the throne, and that Aethelric the Usurper was dead. In that circumstance, it's argued that Edwin stuck around for a while, possibly as an ally, before coming into conflict with the Bernician king and fleeing. Unfortunately, either situation is possible, and we lack records of both the rise of Aethelric of Deira as well as Edwin's flight. So it's really hard to say what happened there. What we do know, though, is that the result of all this was Aethelric of Deira was killed, and that Aethelfrith of Bernicia became the king of both Bernicia and Deira, a territory soon to be known as the Kingdom of Northumbria. And that same year, Acha the daughter of the old King Ayla and sister of Edwin, had a son with Aethelfrith, who was named Oswald. Now, there isn't a specific mention of whether there was a previous marriage, and Aethelfrith was staunchly pagan, so your guess is as good as mine as to whether or not there was one, or whether this was just a situation of concubinage or something along those lines. But the end result is that Aethelfrith of Northumbria was reigning supreme in the north. And then, at some point, possibly as soon as Deira was taken, Edwin took flight. 
According to the sources, he bounced around several kingdoms and spent at least some time under the protection of Cadwallon in Gwynedd, which, of course, is in Wales. And you might be surprised by this. And this actually won't be the first time that we'll see an odd level of courtesy being granted to members of exiled dynasties from people who are generally treated as hated rivals. It's just an interesting part of this period. So that's what's going on up in the north. A very powerful and unifying king of Bernicia, and a member of a rival dynasty on the Lamb. Meanwhile, things aren't entirely copacetic in the south. That's because we're told that on the 26th of May, 604, Archbishop Augustine died. And that was a bit of a setback for the church, because although he had appointed Lawrence as his successor, Augustine's mission had really only just begun. And bad luck, Pope Gregory had also just died. So yeah, 604 seems to have been a bit of a mixed bag. We have Christian conversions, we have pagan conquest in the north, we have the death of both the Pope and the Archbishop of England, we have the birth of, presumably, an heir to Northumbria. We probably have an exiled nobleman couch-surfing through Britain. 604 is just a total mess. And a few years later, things continue to get messier. Cholwulf, who had become the king of the West Saxons, attacked the South Saxons. It's theorized that he was after the Isle of Wight and surrounding areas. And that could be true. But at the very least, we're starting to see that the West Saxons are beginning to establish overlordship over Sussex, which probably was giving their neighbors to the east a few headaches. However, Cholwulf wouldn't last much longer, and by 611, we hear that King Chenegils of the West Saxons has taken over. So things in Wessex were mildly expansive, but also mildly turbulent. And sometime around here, or maybe even earlier, Edwin, the exiled son of King Ayla of Deira, found himself in the territory of King Raidwald of the East Angles. And Raidwald granted him sanctuary, which was pretty nice of him. Though that move might have upset King Aethelfrith if it wasn't for the fact that the Northumbrian king was probably too busy beating up on the Britons to notice. I say that because at around this point in our story, we're at 616, which includes a pretty shameful little chapter in our history. So King Aethelfrith, as we have mentioned, was rather fond of throwing elbows and slapping around his neighbors, also of taking their stuff. Well, it looks like Poes, Gwyneth, and possibly Mercia were getting a bit annoyed with this. And so war broke out. We aren't given specific details, and we don't even know who started it, but we do know that it was Aethelfrith's army that marched out to fight the Welsh. And we're told that King Aethelfrith brought his army to Chester, what used to be known as Deva. And there he encountered a large group of monks who were praying for victory against the pagan host from Northumbria. And upon seeing this, Aethelfrith reportedly ordered the monks to be butchered where they stood before any of the rest of the army was engaged. Why? Apparently, because by praying, they were fighting against his army. But this also could just be an indication of the religious climate at the time, and how staunchly opposed Christian conversion was in some areas. Now, a contemporary source says that 1,200 monks were killed that day. But Bede, writing over 100 years later, revised that number down to 200, and claimed it was essentially divine retribution for failing to listen to Augustine. Though, considering that Bede was from Northumbria, 
he might have been motivated to soften the numbers a little bit, as well as absolve his people of the crime. Ah, it wasn't all that bad, and frankly, the Welsh brought it on themselves. Something like that. But regardless of who you believe, 616 is turning out to be a pretty bad year for the Christians. And it's only going to get worse. That's because King Aethelbert of Kent, after many years of rule, died. And his son, Aedbald, took over, probably with his brother, Aethelwald, ruling as an underking to the west. And you'll probably recall that Aedbald, while apparently not overly hostile to Christianity, was still pagan. So that's something of a headache for the diocese. And that headache soon turned into a full-blown migraine when Aedbald married his stepmother. Now it seems that Queen Bertha had already died at an earlier point, though we aren't told when or how that occurred, nor are we told what the stepmother's name was or when Aethelbert remarried. But whatever the case, Aedbald quickly married this woman as soon as his father was dead. So the fledgling diocese was having a bit of a rough time of it. Not only was there a pagan on the throne of Kent now, but he was married to his stepmom. None of this was good. At all. So the church sprung into action and tried to convert this new Kentish king and convince him to set his mom aside and stop being so creepy. But the new king was rather reluctant, and it would actually take a year before he would agree to convert, leave his stepmother, and marry Emma, a Frankish princess. So yeah, things in Kent are kind of rough at this point. Also, pretty icky. But it wasn't just Kent that was having serious trouble. There was also the Kingdom of the East Saxons. Remember King Sabert, the brother-in-law of Aethelbert and recent convert to Christianity? Well, his stepbrother and overlord was now dead. And Sabert's three sons and heirs were still pagan. And it's theorized that they and the Thanes were not overly happy about how Sabert allowed such intense displays of Kentish domination within Essex. So that same year, we're told that King Sabert died. How he died is not mentioned, but I'll point this out and let you ponder the possibilities. His three sons took the throne, and they immediately expelled the missionaries from London. It sounds a bit suspect, doesn't it? And as for those missionaries, that must have been pretty rough. They were chucked out of London and fled back to Canterbury, so much for London being the Sea of Britain. And that retreat wasn't exactly ideal, since they went back to Kent only to find it being ruled over by another pagan. Things had changed on them fast. But hey, all hope wasn't lost. I mean, sure. We have a pagan in the north who had killed between 200 and 1,200 praying monks before a battle. And sure, we had the death of the first Anglo-Saxon Christian king. And we had the potentially violent death of the second Anglo-Saxon Christian king. And we had the expulsion of Christian missionaries from London, which was supposed to be the sea for the diocese. But at least we had King Raidwald of the East Angles, right? He was baptized and Christian, sorta. And now that Aethelbert was dead, he was the dominant force south of the Humber. He was the new Bretwalda. Maybe this could stop the bleeding. Well, not so much. See, as I pointed out earlier, Raidwald didn't seem to have been all that crazy about Christianity. But he did learn from Aethelbert. 
So, much like Aethelbert used his power to urge his underlings to convert to Christianity, it looks like Raidwald did the same thing. Only, he used that power to get them to abandon Christianity and return to paganism. Which could be partially why King Sabert of the East Saxons ended up dead and his pagan sons took the throne. So, where are we? At the beginning of this episode, we had Kent and Essex being ruled by Christian kings. We had the archbishopric constructing churches and monasteries, ordaining bishops, and even constructing St. Paul's in London. We had a violent and fractured north. And we had the entire south being militarily dominated by a Christian Bretwalda. And just over a decade later, the north is rapidly unifying under an incredibly powerful pagan king. The Christian kings of Kent and Essex are dead. The bishopric of London has been abandoned. There were no Christian kings in the Anglo-Saxon territories, and the South was being militarily dominated by a pagan Bretwalda. So for the church, and for Aethelfrith's neighbors, 616 looks like it was a complete and utter debacle. Now, Raidwald was probably feeling pretty happy with things, but his life wasn't free of headaches either. After all, he lived uncomfortably close to Aethelfrith. And we'll get to that next time. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook. We're on facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can go to the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click get involved and click forums. Oh, and I almost forgot Twitter. Just go to Twitter and search for at British Podcast. You can follow our feed there. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>